This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science, but did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join. Welcome to the Science Podcast for September 18th, 2015. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, Daniel Markovitz talks about fairness among elite Americans. And David Grimm is here with some of our latest online news stories. Support for the Science Podcast is provided by AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Science. Now we have David Grimm, editor for our daily news site. He's here to talk about some recent online stories. I'm Sarah Crespi. First up, we have a story on the origins of fluorine. On Earth, the highly reactive element fluorine is very rare in its pure form, but it is found bound up with other atoms and minerals and gases all over the planet. In the universe at large, it is considered very rare, perhaps too rare. So Dave... Um, some researchers decided to take a look look around a little bit harder for fluorine. What did they do? So they looked at a bunch of stars, and they looked at these stars a lot more closely than researchers had in the past. And they were looking for signatures of a very nasty gas named hydrogen fluoride, which if you breathe it, it could actually kill you. Luckily, it's not around in abundance where we are, but, but out in the universe, it, it can be produced by some stars. And that's a clue, obviously, that there's some fluorine there. And they looked at uh, 79 stars for hydrogen fluoride, and they found it in 51 of their target stars, so a lot more and a lot more abundance than they had expected. These astronomers are now suggesting that there is so much fluorine in the universe, we need a new explanation for how it's formed. What do they suspect is happening? Well, what the researchers think is happening is that during supernova explosions, these explosions are so energetic that they release tons of elementary particles called neutrinos. And what neutrinos can do is they can actually, because they're so energetic, they can actually knock protons or neutrons off neon atoms. And neon atoms are incredibly abundant in stars. And what happens if you, is if you knock these things off neon atoms, they actually become fluorine which is not very common in stars, but would be a lot more common if you had a lot more of these neutrinos shooting around. What was the original thinking on how fluorine was formed before this neutrino idea? Well, the previous thinking was that fluorine was formed through the nuclear reactions that usually occur in a star. Um, That wouldn't produce a lot of fluorine. And so the answer might actually be that both of these things are going on, that you do have fluorine produced by the star itself, but also when the star explodes. Next up, we have a story on persistent lone wolves. Dave, this is really your turf. 
What are some of the big differences between domesticated dogs and wolves? Some of the big differences as far as we're concerned are behavioral differences. As we know, dogs are very social animals. They're easily trained. They're friendly. They play fetch. These are all things that wolves don't really do very well. But the question this new study asks is, dogs have gained so much during domestication. Is there anything important that they've lost? And what they focus in on is problem solving. And previous studies have shown that dogs give up when faced with a tough, insolvable problem. But wolves don't. And maybe that means that wolves are not as smart as dogs. <laughs> well, yeah, or that wolves are just more persistent than dogs. And this new study was all about sort of teasing that out. And what the researchers did is they took 20 dogs, 10 of them were pet dogs, 10 of them were shelter dogs, and 10 wolves that were raised by people. And they gave them a task that was hard to solve, but not impossible. Basically involved putting a sausage inside a sealed container. But the only way to open the container was to pull a rope that was attached to the container while you were trying to open the container at the same time. And there's actually a video with the story if you want to see a wolf attempting to solve this puzzle. So it was solvable, but it wasn't easy? It wasn't easy. And what the researchers found was that the wolves, most of the wolves, if given enough time, figured it out. In fact, I think eight out of the 10 wolves figured it out. But none of the dogs figured it out. They just sort of gave up after a few seconds. And even if their owners were present, or even if the researchers were present, the dogs still gave up, but they sort of looked at their owners or they looked at the researchers for help. And does this mean that dogs aren't as smart as wolves? <laughs> well, you know, it can mean a lot of things. It could mean that dogs just can't figure this out. But more likely what it means is that in the wild, wolves have to figure things out for themselves. So it doesn't matter whether human beings nearby or human beings not nearby, the wolves going to figure it out. But dogs over tens of thousands of years of domestication have really come to depend on us for help. We're sort of collaborators with them. So if they face a problem, they're going to say like, hey, help me figure this out or hey, do this for me. Like, hey, clean up my poop for me <laughs> or hey, throw this frisbee for me. You know, they're really very much relying on us. They've evolved to rely on us, whereas wolves have not. So it's not terribly surprising that when they're faced with a challenge that is difficult, that they are going to give up and ask us to help them. Last, we have another story on a domesticated animal, this time the chicken. Domestic chickens are descended from the red jungle fowl of Southeast Asia. Domestics are bigger, make more eggs, and less afraid of people. A new study, inspired by one of my favorite studies, which was on foxes, took a look at how this happened. Dave, let's start with the fox study. Yeah, this is an ongoing study that started in the early 20th century in Russia. And basically what the research was trying to figure out is can we turn back the clock on dog domestication? And here they used foxes. Can we take a group of foxes and through breeding them for friendliness generation after generation, will they begin to resemble dogs? And lo and behold, they did. They got floppy ears and they got curly tails and some of them even started to bark and they became very friendly. And so this was a very seminal experiment in the field of domestication because it showed that not only can domestication happen relatively quickly, but that when you select for something like tameness, you get a whole lot of other traits that come along with it. Were they looking for friendly chickens here? Basically, these researchers wanted to do the same thing. They said, you know, can we turn back the clock on chicken domestication? And if we just select for friendly chickens, 
are we going to see other traits arise as well? I guess they were friendly jungle fowl at this point. Right. So they started with a red jungle fowl, which is the ancestor of today's chicken. This doesn't look too much like today's chicken. It's a very colorful bird, but also not a very friendly bird, as you would expect from a wild animal. And just like the foxes, the researchers bred these chickens generation after generation, some of them to be meaner, but also some of them to be friendlier. The ones that were more docile with people were the ones that kept on getting to breed, and the most docile of those kept on getting to breed. And basically, the researchers wanted to see what would happen over several generations. And so there was a slew of other changes that accompanied friendliness or not being quite as afraid of humans as the other chickens. What did they see? The birds grew up faster. They laid larger eggs, and they were actually bossier (laughs) than their more fearful counterparts. And underlying this, the researchers also wanted to see if there were any metabolic or genetic changes. What was going on there? Right. And they saw, when they looked under the hood, they saw a lot of interesting cellular changes. The tamer chickens had a faster metabolism, which could explain why they were growing faster. They had higher levels of serotonin, which is a signaling molecule in the brain that's involved with fear responses, also hormones associated with metabolism and feeding. So this could all suggest a lot of the changes that we're seeing with chickens trace back to a lot of these sort of molecular changes that are happening. And this, just like the Fox experiment, shows that What's really interesting about domestication is that we, you know, we think that we're just selecting for one thing, tameness, but all these other things come along for the ride. And just like with, you know, dogs getting floppier ears and barking, things that we find cute or helpful in some cases, chickens with larger eggs and they grow faster are obviously a lot more helpful to farmers as well. Which came first, though, the friendly (laughs) chicken or the large egg-laying chicken? This study, unfortunately, does not solve that eternal question. Okay, what else is on the site this week, Dave? Well, Sarah, we've got a story about the effect coffee has on your body's internal clock. Also a story about how a faulty immune system may explain some cases of obesity. For Science Insider, our policy blog, we've got a story about the U.S. and China agreeing to some very deep carbon cuts. Also a story about how air pollution may be causing people to die earlier worldwide. So be sure to check out all these stories on the site. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Sarah. David Grimm is the editor for our online daily news site. I'm Sarah Crespi. You can check out the latest news and the policy blog, Science Insider, at news.sciencemag.org. In the last 50 years, more than half of U.S. presidents attended Yale, Harvard, or Princeton, To get to know more about the people who tend to hold power in the country, Daniel Markovitz and colleagues examined the preferences of Yale Law students for fair-mindedness and equality. I spoke with him about the results and what it might mean for U.S. politics down the line. Rising inequality is making it increasingly interesting to ask whether the rich people of America are just poor people with money or whether they're in some way or other distinctive. And one of the things that we were interested in in particular is asking whether rich Americans or elite Americans are distinctive specifically with respect to their beliefs about inequality and their beliefs about what just distribution is and what kinds of schemes of economic order are fair and proper for our society. And the short answer is that we found that they are very, very different. As Americans become more elite, They both, according to our research, become more selfish, and more importantly, 
they become more inclined to favor efficiency over equality when the two values conflict. And critically, they do that regardless of their partisan political affiliation. So in our most elite sample, the subjects were much more inclined to favor efficiency over equality, even though they were Democrats versus Republicans by a factor of 10 to 1. And your focus was on Yale, which is your home institution at this point. Uh, Why focus on this school in particular? So uh, we didn't just focus on Yale. We have a bunch of different samples in the study. One sample represents the American population broadly. Then we have some intermediate elites, undergraduates at the University of Berkeley, and American households selected for having a graduate degree and household income of over $100,000 a year. Our most extreme elite was Yale Law students, and we focused on them for two reasons. One is that Yale Law students or similarly situated people are going to be very important in American public policy. All nine sitting Supreme Court justices are graduates of either Harvard or Yale Law School. And if you look at the past presidents, Presidents Bush 1, Clinton, Bush 2, and Obama are all graduates of either Yale or Harvard, and Presidents Clinton and Obama are graduates of Yale or Harvard Law School. So these are going to be very influential people in the world going forward. Finally, and this is no small thing, it's not easy to study the extremes of the American elite. They're hard to find. They're hard to pin down. It's difficult to get their time to figure out what their beliefs and preferences are. But if you can get them while they're still students, then you can study them much more systematically than you can do in other settings. What kinds of attributes did you examine in these many different groups that you looked at? So we looked at two questions in particular. One is what you might call the choice between being selfish and being fair-minded. That is, when you're faced with a decision problem in which you have to give a resource to yourself and to another person, do you prefer yourself? Do you prefer the other person, in which case you're an altruist? Or do you balance your own interest against the other person's interests evenly or fair-mindedly? So that was the first question that we asked. The second question we asked was a little different, which is, how do you trade off equality against efficiency? That's a little more abstract, but it's a very important question to ask about public policy. It's the question whether it's more important to grow the pie or to split the pie more evenly across the population. So there are any number of economic policies which have to choose whether you want to make the economy as big as possible or, alternatively, whether you're willing to take some hit in the size of the economy in order to make economic resources distributed more evenly. To use a a famous metaphor from the 70s, economic redistribution, policies that benefit the middle class and the poor, often involve leaky buckets. So they take resources from the rich and give them to others, but a little bit of the resource leaks out. And the question is, how much of a leak are you willing to tolerate? Mm -hmm. And that question is captured by the trade-off between efficiency, which would say tolerate no leak at all, and equality, which would say tolerate a very, very big leak, if by tolerating the leak you make the overall outcome more even-handed. And when you say leaky here, you don't mean the idea that people will take advantage of a system that attempts to redistribute wealth specifically, or do you mean more generally that it costs money to redistribute money? In any number of ways, policies that involve redistribution will also cost money. It may be that people take advantage. Much more significant is that the kinds of policies that you need to redistribute change incentives in the economy, distort labor decisions, 
restructure the way in which businesses do their work, often in ways that somewhat reduce total output. And that means that if you care about equality enough, you're willing to accept a hit to total output, but you have to care about equality before you're willing to accept the hit. Mm -hmm. In the study, you use something called a dictator game to ask these questions of your participants. Can you describe how that worked? What was it like for a person to make these kinds of decisions? Sure. This is a very familiar game used by economists and other social scientists all around the world. It's been played literally thousands of times by probably millions of people. The idea is you give one person, whom you call a dictator, a pot of money, and you tell that person you can distribute that money between yourself and an anonymous other person however you want. And then you can just implement the distribution. So in the standard dictator game, you give somebody 100 bucks and you say there's an anonymous other person in the world. Decide how much of it you want to keep and how much of it you want to give away. A purely selfish person will keep all of it. Now, our dictator games had a twist, which is that we changed the price of giving. And this is how we got the equality efficiency trade-off into this study. So sometimes the rule was, imagine, that for every dollar that you sacrifice, the other person gets $10. Sometimes the rule was, for every dollar you sacrifice, the other person gets only 10 cents. Sometimes the rule was in between. So by changing the price of giving, we could make it the case that if you were a little bit generous, you would benefit someone an enormous amount, or that you had to be incredibly generous to benefit someone just a small amount. And that way we could see how you cared about equality efficiency trade-offs. Somebody who cares only about efficiency and who is impartial will always give or keep so as to maximize the total amount that is paid out in the game. So that when giving is very cheap, if I sacrifice a dollar, the other guy gets 10, I'll give everything away. And if giving is very expensive, so that if I sacrifice a dollar, the other guy gets only a dime, I'll keep everything. Somebody who cares about equality won't be nearly so sensitive to the price of giving because what she'll try to do is make an allocation so that both parties get roughly the same amount regardless of the price of giving. Let's talk about the main result of your study, which is how these big groups of people compared in fair-mindedness and preferences for equality. What did you find? We found two things. First is that elite Americans are more inclined to be selfish and less inclined to be fair-minded than ordinary Americans. In this case, it didn't matter very much how elite the samples were. So the Berkeley sample and the Yale sample were roughly equivalently selfish, as opposed to the general population, which was somewhat more fair-minded. The big result, and the one that's really striking, is that as you get more elite across our samples, our subjects cared more and more and more about efficiency versus equality. So whereas the population as a whole in the United States is roughly evenly split between having a focus on equality and having a focus on efficiency, our Yale Law School subjects favored efficiency over equality by a ratio of almost four to one. And critically, they did so even though they self-identified as Democrats versus Republicans by a ratio of about 10 to one. So an elite that self-identifies as overwhelmingly progressive Democrats still seems to care about efficiency much, much more than the general population. The rich in that respect really are different from the rest. They're not just poor people with money. They have a set of beliefs and ideals which are at odds with what the population as a whole 
holds dear. And that, I think, is incredibly important because one of the great mysteries of American public life at the moment is why, in spite of three decades of rising economic inequality, an economic inequality that's become much greater than the population as a whole thinks appropriate or appealing, and even under two popular two-term Democratic presidents, the public policy response to rising inequality has been incredibly tepid. And the question is why? And there are lots of theories out there that involve capture of politicians by big business or by banks. Our study suggests a much simpler theory, which is that the elite simply doesn't care very much about equality. It doesn't matter what party it belongs to. The elite seems to think that efficiency is very important, and the elite thinks efficiency is more important than the population as a whole. So it sounds like there's a disconnect between what people are voted into office for and then what they actually do when they get there, because for them, efficiency is what, important to the way the government runs? So there may be a disconnect. You know, our study doesn't say what people were voted into office for. What our study suggests, though, is that elites of both parties hold moral commitments on basic questions about economic distribution that are at odds with the population as a whole. The question why the elites hold those commitments, there are lots of possible answers. One of them is a reasonable person can care a lot about efficiency. It's not a crazy argument to say that if you want to benefit people over the long run, you should make the pie as big as possible. I was going to say, some of this sounds a little, you know, it sounds kind of negative to say that people are self-interested and not as interested in equality as everyone else. Are people taking this personally? I don't know how people are taking it. I'm not sure it should be read that negatively. The self-interested part of the study, I think, should be played down because it's very hard to interpret what self-interest in a game like this means. You know, a striking feature about the Yale Law students, for example, is that if you ask how far below their maximum earnings are they earning in their lives, and do they take jobs that serve the public interest where they could make a lot more money in private sector work, many, many of them do that. The more striking part of the study, I think, is the efficiency part. And there, I think there's just seems to be a principal disconnect between the elite and the rest of American society. And I don't think it's the point of a study like this to take sides on that disconnect, but more to point out that when you have a policymaking class that has systematic views across both political parties that's at odds with what most voters want, you introduce a kind of a tension or a dysfunction into a democracy. And one of the things that we may be seeing when we see candidates like Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders, whose appeal is baffling to party elites of both sides, is you're seeing the mass of Americans saying perfectly sensibly, the elites are not representing our ideals on some basic questions, so we're going to vote for outsiders, which is exactly what you'd expect to happen in a democracy when you have the kind of disconnect that our study suggests that you have. Daniel, thanks so much for talking with me. Thank you so much for taking time to do this. I really appreciate it. Daniel Markovitz and colleagues write about fairness and efficiency among U.S. elites this week in science. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org or tweet to us at Science Magazine. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and many other places, or listen to us on the Science site. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. 
I'm Sarah Crespi. On behalf of Science Magazine and publisher AAAS, thanks for joining us. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science, but did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join.